The People's Constitution, the path to empowerment of Australians in a 21st century democracy by Bronwyn Kelly. Read by Bronwyn Kelly. Chapter 6, Part 7, The Impact of Destructive Mindsets on Human Rights and the Prospects for Peace. The above three examples of pervasive destructive mindsets show that Australian governments have distinctly preferred a constitution in which human rights can be set aside whenever, and preferably before, everyday Australians, perhaps in a mood for self-determination, might choose to exercise those rights in a manner that would interfere with any government agendas that had the objective of goading the populace into war, frightening them into silence, or suppressing support for the claims of Indigenous communities for shares in returns from Australia's vast mineral and resource assets. While these mindsets persist, the nation itself, as well as the governments we elect, will tacitly or openly support the subjugation of human rights so that they will be a secondary or even irrelevant consideration in policy development. This is likely to apply despite the fact that subjugation of human rights is fully perverse, a self-destructive self-denial, by which I mean that Australians have tended to perversely deny themselves rights in a manner that propels them to war rather than protects them from it. The fact that a large proportion of Australians have been well-schooled, or shall we say tamed, to accept limitations of their human rights in exchange for national security shows just how effective the mindset for war and counter-terrorism is. As the results of the 2020 Lowy Institute poll suggested, a substantial majority of Australians, 59% in 2019, agreed that the Australian government has got the balance right between the need for press freedom and the need to enforce the law and protect national security. The same proportion, 59%, thought Australia's intelligence agencies have got the balance right between protecting national security and also being appropriately open and transparent with the Australian people about their activities. And an overwhelming proportion of Australians, 80%, thought Australia's intelligence agencies are effective at protecting Australia's national security. In short, Australians, at least in 2019, readily accepted that despite a massive legislative program removing their rights and despite a clear decline in transparency and ethics in governance, national security concerns had not unacceptably overridden their rights and the need for transparency in governance. These results might reasonably be taken to indicate that, culturally, most Australians are generally comfortable with secrecy and a lack of transparency and suppression of free speech by governance, as though loss of rights is the price we must pay, and are quite willing to pay, for safety from war and terrorism. But if this is actually the cultural preference of Australians, it is nevertheless a high-risk preference, particularly in circumstances where governments are untrustworthy and trust in them is proportionately low, as it is in Australia. It is also a highly perverse preference insofar as the loss of rights of free speech, assembly and association is likely to expose Australians to the risks of wars they don't actually want. The mindset suggests that, one, war is inevitable, particularly by implying that an external authoritarian-style power, 
in Australia's case in the 21st century, this power is represented as China, is intent on invasion, world domination, destruction of democracy and negation of all human rights, and that, too, the only way to protect ourselves from this is to create a secret state and exclude ourselves from any say in whether the war should be provoked or entered, and that, three, we should therefore give up rights and freedoms to be safe from that ostensibly aggressive external power. But this logic is essentially and fatally perverse, not simply because it wildly misrepresents China as more a threat than an opportunity, and actually creates the threat where none existed beforehand, but also because it encourages Australians to think that giving up their human rights is in their best interests, when in fact their primary interest is their human rights. The mindset encourages us to presuppose that to be safe from those who would ostensibly take away our rights, we must give up our rights, even before the supposed war has started. More than that, we should lock ourselves down into the same sort of secret and autocratic state we revile in our newly simulated enemy. We must accept that war propaganda, which in the 1960s we agreed at the United Nations should be prohibited by law, is vital to our security and freedom when, in fact, it is more capable of bringing on a war and represents an instant loss of freedom. Bearing in mind that this entirely perverse mindset is so ingrained in Australian culture, we might not have much reason to be too optimistic about our prospects for escaping it to the safer place of peaceful collaboration we longed for at the United Nations in 1945. But as I showed in Chapter 5, there is evidence of a will to peace among Australians. And we also have the means of reversing both the mindset for war and the other two destructive mindsets. In the next sections, I will begin to outline how we can do that. Chapter 6, Part 8, The Reversibility of Destructive Mindsets. That the Australian government has refused since 1966 to make war propaganda illegal marks out Australia as a nation whose governments are hungry for enemies because that is how populations are made passive and control is exercised by entirely unimaginative and plainly incompetent governments in both peacetime and in war. Defence policy analysts will assert that this posture of simulating enemies well before they emerge as real military adversaries or even palpable military threats is simply healthy vigilance and is essential for strategic defence planning. They will perhaps claim that eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. This might be reasonable if strategic defence planning were matched by strategic peace planning and if eternal vigilance were matched by support of liberty and freedoms. But as I have already said, the topic of government obligations to Australians to secure peace hardly features in our national discourse, and in any case, eternal vigilance is not the price of liberty. In a free society, it should be evident that the opposite is true. That is, the price of eternal vigilance is liberty, liberty lost. The form in which this propaganda is foisted on Australians may look like mere readiness for war and healthy vigilance, but it is in no way so benign and harmless. 
It is self-harm, destroying instantly the very thing it purports to save, human rights. The lost liberty of Australians in the first two decades of the 21st century arises mostly from government-sponsored war propaganda, sometimes veiled, sometimes not, rather than from any genuine emergency, such as the COVID-19 pandemic, when restrictions were invoked on a temporary basis to stop a loss of life on a massive scale. But unlike the temporary lost liberties of the pandemic, the restrictions on freedom that were legislated by federal governments, ostensibly in the interest of national security after 2001, are likely to be permanent unless we choose to reverse them and are likely to expose Australians to loss of life on a scale more massive than the pandemic, especially if they nullify those voices calling on governments to stem the risks arising from climate change. And yet, as the Lowy poll showed, the majority of Australians have been tamed to quietly accept these restrictions. As Hugh White might put it, we sleepwalk to war. I would add that we have shown a distinct preference to sleepwalk to climate disaster too. That said, Australians can still choose to reverse this. In the early 2020s, they are showing distinct signs of reversing their sleepwalk to climate disaster. At the same time, they can choose to secure the human rights and freedoms which have been fast disappearing. And in placing those rights squarely on policy agendas as essential to the primary purpose of government, which is peace, they can use them to release Australians from the expense and the likelihood of destruction from war and climate change. If we put human rights and peace first and relegate readiness for war from its current disproportionate priority and dangerous pedestal to its proper place, that is, to a place we work to avoid, we are far more likely to preserve the lifestyle, freedoms and democracy we value. To do this, we will need to remake the Constitution to insert our first claim of universal human rights. In a parallel set of amendments, we will also need to consign the racist clauses in the Constitution to the dustbin of history. Unless we do that, we will find that citizens are dragged back again into the politics of warmongering and its attendant curtailing of the very rights such belligerents would claim to protect. Despite poll results showing that Australians are willing to accept limitations on their human rights in exchange for national security, other evidence is emerging that strongly suggests Australians are likely to be ready for a transition in national identity and cultural orientation in favour of human rights. In 2021, the Human Rights Law Centre commissioned a poll of over 1,000 Australians on support for a Charter of Human Rights. Results showed that support for a charter had risen sharply since the onset of COVID-19. 83% of people believe there should be a document that sets out in clear language the rights and responsibilities that everyone has here in Australia, an increase from 66% in 2019. 74% agree that a charter of human rights would help people and communities to make sure the government does the right thing, compared to 56% two years earlier. There was a similar surge in support for the idea of a Charter of Human Rights, with 46% supporting a charter and only 10% opposed, compared with 33% support and 10% opposition in 2019. 
the increased support came from the category of people who were not sure, which dropped 14% across the two years. The biggest increases in support were from younger people. These results suggest that the experience of COVID-19 may have woken Australians from the above-mentioned sleepwalk, at least as far as they may perceive a need to codify their human rights in law before they are extinguished entirely, and perhaps forever, by an intrusive state. However, the Constitution itself presents Australians with significant challenges to any program of reform, let alone one as fundamental as constitutional enshrinement of a Charter of Human Rights. These challenges can be overcome if the will is there. In fact, they are far easier to overcome than challenges posed by climate change and somewhat easier to overcome than the challenges posed by tensions between global powers. Unlike laws about war and climate change, enshrinement of human rights in the Constitution is an issue that can be dealt with without the need to defer to the priorities of other nations. It is within our domestic control, and other than for the mindsets I have discussed above, there is no major cultural barrier to conferring equal rights on all citizens. Ask any Australian whether she or he thinks she or he should have equal and universal human rights. It would be extremely difficult in any statistically valid polling to come up with a majority who would say no. Results of the surveys I have quoted in Chapter 5 about the high value placed by Australians on equality, egalitarianism, social justice, freedom and democracy would suggest that such a result would be impossible. These results all imply strong support for access to universal human rights on an equal basis. Nevertheless, there are likely to be political barriers. Politicians who will come up with crazy campaigns against a Charter of Rights without providing a single defensible reason as to why a Charter of Rights is not in the public interest. The probability of such political resistance and the challenges presented by the Constitution itself, inasmuch as politicians control our ability to amend the Constitution, are the two biggest process hurdles to a Charter of Human Rights for Australians. As such, the chances of success in such a reform will be increased if we can isolate a simple process for enshrining our rights. In the following sections, I will examine the most effective constitutional barriers to a human rights charter and pose an option for the simplest way to overcome the problem and go around those barriers.